Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives where you can listen to every episode we've ever done going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is September 12, 2019, and my guest is entrepreneur and anesthesiologist Keith Smith, the co-founder of the Surgery Center of Oklahoma in Oklahoma City. Our topic today is that center. Uh, the potential for a true market in healthcare, not the one we have now, which is distorted in so many ways. Keith, welcome to Econ Talk. Thanks for having me. I went to your website uh, of the Surgery Center of Oklahoma. It's, um, I think, some people when they if they come upon it must think it is supposed to be humor, uh, as opposed to a serious medical uh, facility. <laughs> I hope that doesn't alarm you. There, there is an outline of a human body. There are rollover points for your cursor. Uh, of the body in all different places, shoulder, uh, uh, pelvis, uh, head, neck, wrists, etc. And when your cursor rolls over that, it gives you a choice of surgical procedures for those different parts of the body that are common and that you conduct at the center. And then the incredible thing is there's a set of prices. Uh, you promise 100% transparency, so there are no surprises. It's inclusive of the facility charge, the anesthesiology. And you only take cash. Uh, on your website, you say you are a free market-loving, price-displaying, state-of-the-art, AAA-HC-accredited, doctor-owned, multi-specialty surgical center, surgical facility in central Oklahoma. Rather extraordinary. Uh, first, let's hear how you got this idea. When did it start? And how's it going? Well, thanks again for having me. Um, I think the idea uh, became became pretty apparent uh, just a short time after I'd started my anesthesia practice in a, in a large big box hospital uh, in the early 90s. Uh, it was becoming increasingly clear that um, the patients were paying a lot of money. Uh, many of them were surprised after the procedure to find out just exactly how much money they were going to have to pay. Uh, and that in the hospitals were, um, they seemed to be pulling back on the funding it was available for clinical staff, and the administrative staff was ballooning. Uh, the physical plant of the hospitals where I worked too was was also ballooning. So, the the people actually taking care of patients and and doing the work, uh, interacting with patients were were paid increasingly poorly. Uh, and, and this all started in the early 1990s uh, when the government became uh, heavy handed with. Uh, it's resource-based relative value scales, very distorting. Uh, and and simultaneously, uh, while the physicians and the nurses were being paid uh, much less, the hospitals were raking in record profits. Uh, and so, uh, a anesthesiologist buddy and I, uh, we we knew this was this was not right. Uh, it's not something we'd signed up for. We felt like. Uh, frankly, we were an accessory to a crime uh, that we were uh, we were aiding and abetting uh, really a financial homicide. Some of these patients were completely destroyed uh, just for coming in and having what we knew was a very simple procedure uh, that should not cost that much. So, so in 1997, um, 
Steve Lantier and I, both anesthesiologists, walked away, and, and we walked away from uh, very successful anesthesia practices and and opened the Surgery Center of Oklahoma uh, with the idea that we would we would always tell patients how much their procedure was going to cost, and that we would provide uh, only the best care. Uh, and and that that's really how we started. And within within a week of opening, uh, our our dream came true. The phone rang and a patient uh, said she needed a, a breast mass removed and wanted to know how much it was going to cost. And I I was so happy to get this phone call, but then I realized I did not know the answer to her question. <laughs> so I asked if she might if I put her on hold and I called the surgeon and I asked him, how much is your fee? And he he had no idea. So I said, well, you you know, suggest a fee, or I'll have to I'll have to answer for you. Uh, but but by then, many many doctors were already tiring of someone else telling them what they were worth and declaring their worth. So this particular surgeon, he's a really nice guy, and he he said five hundred dollars, and I thought that was cheap. But I said, okay. And I knew this procedure, a breast biopsy, was going to take about 20 or 30 minutes. Anesthesiologists uh, basically bill for our time. So I, I added in what I thought that amount of time of mine was worth. And what I knew the minimal uh, operating room supplies required would cost. Uh, and then I was about to take her off hold when I realized that she was going to want to know. <laughs> yeah, she was going to want to know, is this cancer? So I called a pathologist friend. And asked him, you know, how much do you want to examine this specimen? And of course, he didn't know, uh, but he thought about it for a little bit, and he wanted twenty-eight dollars. So I added all this up and took her off hold. Um, the whole thing took five minutes, uh, and I told her nineteen hundred dollars is our is our all-in price. And she said that's interesting. The so-called not-for-profit hospital down the street wants nineteen thousand, and that's just for the facility. Um, and that, I tell that story so people know that how we come up with our prices. And it happened the first week we were opened. We knew we were on to something. And, and then after we crunched our numbers on our end, we realized we were profitable at that number. Uh, and to this day, that's still our price. Uh, the prices on our website are the same prices we quoted over the phone in 1997 with a handful of exceptions, uh, all of which are lower than the prices that we quoted in 1997. So we we really did want to uh, interact directly with patients. We wanted not just to be their medical, but their financial advocate. And we thought if we owned and controlled our own facility, now we certainly had that opportunity and and now we take that responsibility very seriously. Now it's, I want to mention it's important to remember that the prices that those people you talk to in, in setting that original price, they're not real prices in, in the sense that you mentioned some complicated – there's an acronym for it, I'm sure, that the government did in the early 1990s, some pricing structure. There's, there's always – there are always new ones. Um, those are prices that are often made up uh, by definition by the government. So what a surgeon earns or what a uh, anesthesiologist charges or what a facility charges, they're all kind of complicated by the fact that the price universe out there is unmoored 
from the usual market considerations. There are some feedback loops. The insurance companies have some incentive, not enough in my view, to keep prices down in a way that keeps customers happy because there's another set of intermediaries, the employer usually. Uh, It's a terrible, terrible system we're in now, but you've cut through all those Gordian knots as best you could. You've set a set of prices given that existing universe out there of fake prices, and they're fake in many ways that we'll be talking about. But you're, you're serious? You haven't raised them in 22 years? Yeah, yeah. so much for the spiraling cost of health care. Um, I'd like to point out that uh, some of the prices on our website may actually look higher than when we first started. And the reason for that is that the actual uh, the actual bundle of services that we are providing that initially maybe were not inside of the bundle of care are. For instance, a patient might need physical therapy after one of the procedures on our website. And when, when we first posted that, that wasn't included. So the patient had that expense when they left. Now, we we actually bill and collect for that uh, for a price less than what the patient would have originally paid. So it, it's, uh, it's a little confusing, but some of our prices may actually look higher, uh, but it's actually because there are there are parts of the care that are now included in the bundle that originally were not. But the part that's that's accruing to you, to the facility, and and hasn't changed? That is correct. Um, our our fees have not changed at all. It, there were just these – there were these fees over which we had no control originally, over which we now have control. So we include that in our bundled all-in cash-out-the-door price. And some of those prices are actually – literally lower than they were 22 years ago? That That's correct. Not only the prices that we've listed online are lower, but what the patients paid for the care that they received outside of the surgery center after they were discharged is actually lower, primarily because there was such competition from vendors to uh, get in on this and secure our business. What's happened is as as time has gone by and we've we become busier. Uh, our standing with the equipment uh, and supply representatives that we work with has grown. And when they decide to uh, extend a better price to us for whatever it is that we buy to perform these surgeries, we extend that courtesy to the buyer. And that makes us more – and that allows us to cut our prices. So we – we extend that courtesy to the buyer, and that makes us more competitive uh, in this market where where there are really an astonishing number of people who really are price sensitive, who are shopping, who do care what it costs. Uh, well, I guess what's truly shocking is how many people complain about how much it costs, but they really don't care. It's, you know, it's not their money. You know, it's intellectually uh, offensive to them, but it's not – doesn't hurt them. Yes, exactly. <laughs> uh, you know, let- wait. Go ahead. No, you go ahead. Well, we we did this for years, uh, just quoting prices over the phone, and and you know the phone would ring again, and someone would say, "Well, I have a breast mass, and I need a breast biopsy." And my staff would call and say, "Well, how much do we want?" And I would you know laugh and say, "Aren't you writing these down?" I mean, we're gonna we're gonna be doing this. So more than once, there was a list. There was a list that was created over time, 
and we'd been open about uh, 10 years, uh, and and it was 10 years ago, about right now, uh, when I decided to launch a website and put all the prices online, that when we did that 10 years ago and posted all these prices for everyone to see, uh, the first patients that arrived were Canadians, and and we all thought that was very interesting and instructive. Uh, they they had coverage; they just didn't have access to the care many of them needed. Uh, and, and they are part of a a group of buyers and patients uh, in the in this country and outside of this country that are price sensitive, and actually do care uh, that that there's a you know a ten or fifteen or $20,000 difference between a price at our facility and, and wherever it is that they live, if it's available. Uh, what proportion of your uh, patients come from, say, the say from Oklahoma? Uh, about 40% of our patients uh, are from Oklahoma. Uh, we, it was about one year ago, we crossed the 50% threshold, uh, and now week to week, consistently, uh, 60% of more of the patients uh, we we care for are not from and don't live in the state of Oklahoma. And how many of them come from outside the United States? I would say Roughly. five percent. Uh, five percent or less on any any given month come from outside. We have our first patient from Pakistan coming uh, next month, uh, but it's it's not uncommon common at all to see patients from um, Africa, Europe, uh, Canada, uh, several several other foreign countries. But that those early patients that came from Canada, they were coming, I assume, because they were in a hurry, and you could do that surgery well, quickly. Well, you can define in a hurry. Uh, the most common Canadian story we still uh, see is a, a, a woman that has painful or dysfunctional uterine bleeding and needs a hysterectomy, and they're in a three-year waiting line uh, to see a gynecologist. And they're, and they're tired of receiving transfusions or just feeling downright awful. Yeah. So for $8,000, that covers surgeon anesthesia facility pathology and their overnight stay. They're, they're more than happy to pay that, many of them. And so I, I don't know that three years is in a hurry. Uh, in a hurry. <laughs> I would say three years is unavailable. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Good, fair enough. Uh, yeah. let's, talk, let's talk about your surgeons. Uh, you haven't raised prices in, in – uh, 20 years, uh, what do they get? Do they get the same they used to get? Does that surgeon get 500 for that biopsy or is it changed? No, it's changed. We, uh, the surgeons uh, make more uh, net on a surgery they perform at our place than they do anywhere else and, and regardless who's paying them. So, so what, we, what we did is we basically took uh, the profit component that a facility uh, would receive and padded the surgeon's fee with with a large part of what that profit uh, margin would be so that the surgery center of Oklahoma runs almost as a not-for-profit um, but with just a slight marginal profit. So we've disintermediated the system basically uh, and taken the institutional uh, profitability and minimized that to a large extent but giving part of that to the surgeon who's actually performing the procedure. What uh, what that means is when I when a patient contacts Surgery Center of Oklahoma and says I need a hernia repair or or I I need my cruciate ligament reconstruction or whatever it is they need, 
when I call the surgeon and say, hey, you know, this patient's looking for you, uh, why don't you give them a call? That patient goes to the head of the class. I mean, that is their favorite patient. I mean, that, that's, the, <laughs> that's the business they want for a couple of reasons. One is they're paid handsomely. The, the, the other reason though, and this is actually more important, these are the most grateful, uh, informed people we've ever come across. These these people that are paying their own bills, yeah. uh, shockingly, Novel. have done yeah. their they've done their homework, and they realize that they're you know they're traveling to a facility that's honest. They were going to charge them three thousand for their hernia repair, and you know, the be- next best price they had might have been eighteen thousand. So they're, they're grateful when they arrive. Uh, the surgeons are paid very well. They're very well informed. They've done their homework. So it's uh, everybody has smiles on their face. It's it's a wonderful environment. Are those surgeons on staff, or do they freelance at your facility? They are they are on our medical staff, but none of their none of them are employed. They operate at multiple facilities in this area. Some at even oh, that's, outside. Keith, yeah. that's horrible. They're 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 <laughs> they're they're like they're part of the gig economy. They don't have any any. Well, they have other jobs, so I shouldn't be making fun of this. Argument, but the point is, is that they're not on. They don't draw a salary from you. They're paid no. in piecework, the equivalent yeah, of like I mean, a commission. Well, they're paid fee for service. I mean, if they perform a surgery, they get paid for that. And the end of story. One Amazing. Thing, one thing I'll say is, um, it doesn't happen very often uh, because we do our homework before people travel here. But it it's very. It's it's I won't I'll say it's not rare for a patient to arrive uh, with a diagnosis uh, that is surgical, and uh, and and a diagnosis that's been attached to this patient as surgical by by another surgeon or physician, and one of our physicians sees them and says, well, actually you you know you don't need your rotator cuff repaired. It's not even torn. You just have a bad case of bursitis, and they they get an injection and and pay $200 and go home. And the this has come about because the I mean the surgeons that work at our place are they're honest and they know, you know, we're we don't have a single insurance contract. So all of the business that we receive uh, comes through the door because people choose us and you know, they want to be there. They're not told by Blue Cross, United, Cigna, Aetna, that, you know, this is in the network. This is where you must go. Uh, patients come to us because they want to be there. And we know we know our reputation's everything. I mean, we live and die by, by our reputation. So there's just a, an accountability that goes along with that, that many times manifests by, you know, a surgeon just looking somebody in the eye and honestly saying, you know, you, you actually don't need surgery, Um and and that that's not a terribly uncommon occurrence. So just to be clear, um, you take no insurance, you take no Medicare, you take no Medicaid, and I actually I find this um, uh, a part of me really likes this. You don't take credit cards, really. You take cashier's checks and cash. That's it. Well, actually, we do take credit cards. Um, I don't know if there's something on our website that says otherwise. Uh, we take Bitcoin. Yeah, uh, we right now. Patient, <laughs> go ahead. <laughs> we had a patient pay um, a guy who lived off the grid um, who wanted to pay in um, in gold coins and Bitcoin, and we've had a second patient pay in Bitcoin. Um, 
Actually, he paid in a different cryptocurrency. I think the uh, website discourages credit cards. It says cashiers and checks are uh, cashiers, checks and cash are preferred. So you might want to just you might want to check yeah. that. But but my my um, my point is, you take zero insurance, so it's not like you have a small staff to deal with that red tape. You have no staff to deal with that red that, tape. That's correct. Um, of course. You have to keep in mind the insurance companies, they started this. Um, they – back in the early days when we opened, I i didn't know. Uh, and I, I actually thought it would be a good idea to have insurance contracts. Uh, but none of the insurance companies wanted to deal with us, and it took me a while to figure out you know, they, they don't want to deal with us. And, and over the course of the years, I think we've had two – um, insurance contracts, but it's primarily because in our formative years, the insurance companies did not want anything to do with us. So, um, you know, we've we have decided, you know, basically they did us a favor, uh, and we're returning that favor now. We really don't want anything to do with them. I think, I think if an insurance carrier contract or contacted me and wanted to work with us at this point, uh, it, it'd be very difficult for me to overcome my skepticism. Well, we're going to talk in a minute about how that affects pricing and that strange, surreal, Kafkaesque world of, of <laughs> quote, prices in a, in a typical hospital. But I, w- I want to go back to that bursitis rotator cuff story. So, because I think it's a really interesting example of the challenges of a market-based system. So I tore my rotator cuff uh, about, I don't know, three years ago. I went to a physiatrist. He's a good friend of mine. He would never say, oh, I think you need surgery. He said, it's a small tear. Now, of course, he's not doing the surgery anyway, but he might refer me to a buddy of his if I weren't his buddy and say, hey, I got another one for you. They might have a formal kickback scheme or it just might be a relationship that they've established over the years. But he happens to be my friend, and he's not going to tell me I need surgery when I don't. He said, I'm going to give you a cortisone shot, steroid shot, and it'll probably be fixed and just give it some time. Okay, so let's go to that's what happened. Now, if I'd gone to an orthopedic surgeon who was a crook uh, or greedy, extra greedy, uh, unnaturally greedy or hungry or needed to pay for his boat, uh, he might have said to himself, well, eh, it's a borderline case. I'll tell him he needs the surgery. And he could show me on the MRI where the tear was. I wouldn't know whether it was a small tear. I wouldn't know whether it's likely to repair itself over six months, three months, three years. And at the same time, his brand, his 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 reputation matters a little bit in our messed up world of, of current healthcare, but not so much as it does in, say, lots of other worlds where consumers are buying and, and assessing quality in a different way. So why would your guy be different? So you say our brand name matters. You know, I come in to your surgery, your place. I've got bursitis, but I think it's a rotator cuff because I've been misdiagnosed or lied to. And you say, yeah, it's a rotator cuff. And you make your, your fee and everybody goes home happy. I think I've been repaired. Why did your surgeon tell the truth? What was – what's different? And, and a related question, how many did you fire? How many did you stop using? And how would you know in this case that it was the wrong decision if they went and did that surgery that shouldn't have been done? Well, the the answer to part one is um, is that most physicians and most surgeons are honest. I mean, the vast majority of surgeons would do 
that don't work with me would do exactly what I said. There are some that are not honest, uh, but I I would argue that is a very small number. Um, I I would say this that over the years um, there have been there have been physicians that I worked with who who really were honest and really were good people uh, and everything being dynamic as it is uh, that things changed and we. You know, for instance, in the operating room would notice during a knee arthroscopy that maybe there wasn't anything wrong. And, and this, you know, this inside the knee, you can see uh, even an anesthesiologist, the staff, I mean, we're kind of looking at each other and well, there's nothing wrong inside of this person's knee or there's nothing wrong inside of this person's shoulder um, or or a surgeon's uh, the number of cases they try to schedule uh increases dramatically and so those are red flags and what we do at the surgery center of oklahoma is kick those people out uh, because that their affiliation with our facility even their affiliation with us is damaging to our reputation so uh, a person like that uh, just they they just don't stay and we just tell them you know we don't think this is working out and you can't schedule cases here anymore but who's Um, who's gonna know in well, other words, everyone knows. Actually, everyone knows. The staff in the room, uh, the scrub techs, the nurses, the anesthesia staff, and we've done this long enough. I mean, you, uh, scrub techs uh, talk amongst themselves, and 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 they go home and say, you know, working with this doctor, you know, who's doing all this unnecessary stuff. I mean, so you don't have to be a physician to know. But once the word of uh, you know someone's perhaps unethical. Uh, behavior begins to begins to make the rounds that uh, a facility's reputation really cannot survive that, and and we we even sniff that uh, and and it's addressed. But uh, but that we know that without any insurance contracts, I mean we 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 don't have some uh, fire hose kind of funnel of patients that's coming our way, whether we're any good or not, or ethical or not. Uh, we have to be accountable to the preferences of of the buyers, and and our reputation is is a huge, huge part of that. But at the other hospitals in town, and you're not alone. You're not the only place a person in Oklahoma City, forget Oklahoma, forget the United States, but even in Oklahoma City, you're not the only hospital. Do they have a problem with that? You think? Do those other hospitals are they more likely to tolerate somebody who's more aggressive like that or unethical? I, th- I think so. Uh, they're not. They're they're not. You know, as as honest as they're inclined to be, they're also additionally not mashed up against um, the power uh, in the discipline of the market. So it it is more likely to occur. They, also, the way the way um, surgeons are paid, the way physicians are paid in big hospital systems where they're employed is is very strange. Uh, they're paid based on their relative value unit production, and so one of those fake prices I was talking about earlier. Yeah, yeah. So a surgeon who who injects a steroid for bursitis, um, his RVU production for that activity is minimal, uh, and so and likewise, a primary care doctor who orders uh, multiple multiple tests, their RVU production uh, goes way up. They can actually see fewer patients and make more money. 
So I, I think the constraints of the market, uh, to the extent that they're absent in the other arrangements, uh, the, the constraints, frankly, that we've embraced, I think there is a higher likelihood that you'll see uh, overutilization issues. Let's talk a little bit about the uh, pricing in those other institutions because I've, I've been um, thinking about it. I think most people don't know much about it until they find themselves in that world or they have a friend who has or a family member who has surgery. Uh, a friend of mine recently had back surgery at an academic institution, nonprofit, regular hospital. A very, very good one with good reputation. Uh, the surgery, not the anesthesiology for a particular type of back surgery. Uh, the surgery was $101,000. And it was actually, I have to get this in for, for my listeners, Keith, I apologize. But the surgery was like $101,673.77. Seriously. Now, my listeners know that macroeconomists have a sense of humor because we know they do because they use decimal points. But it turns out hospital finance offices do too. So, uh, according to my according to my friend, the 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 billed amount was over a hundred thousand, and it had those decimal points. But both that, I'll just call it a hundred thousand. That is not repeat, not what the hospital collected from the insurance company. But that list price, that weird, enormous list price of a hundred thousand dollars, a little over a hundred thousand, was on the form. The surgery um, facility. And I think the surgeon, but not the anesthesiologist, I understand, that they didn't get 100000 They got 13000 from the insurer. So the, the list price was 100 the, surge, the, the facility actually collected 13 You charge for that same surgery, I looked it up, a little under 10 So they're 30% more than you for what they collect, and they're 10 times – what you charge on the list price. My first question is, why do they write down that goofy number of 100000 on the bill, even though the insurance company only pays thirteen? What is that about? Well, I'll, uh, I'll back up in time. I was um, at a meeting uh, where, where there were some hospital people, and they were very angry with me uh, because we put our prices online. And I bet you're really and- popular in Oklahoma. Among <laughs> among the patients, maybe not so much among the hospital administrators. I, I would imagine that. Well, I, I, I'm actually becoming more popular with the hospitals, and I'll talk to you about that <laughs> if you want to. But this this angry hospital administrator uh, lost his cool, and and normally the hospital administrators play things very close to their vest. Um, but he asked me what percentage of my revenue at the Surgery Center of Oklahoma was uncompensated care. That's and like that, poor people. That's for poor people who can't afford it. Yes, and I mean that question haunted me because this is a very bright, very articulate person, and he does not misspeak. <laughs> and I thought very carefully about what he actually said. What percentage of my revenue is uncompensated care? Well, when I think of uncompensated (laughs) care i think of care that i've delivered for which i receive no compensation that's pretty clear but he he asked me how much what percentage of my revenue yeah so i did some checking and indeed hospitals are paid to the extent that they claim that they were not paid 
And this is a kickback. Say that again. Say that again. <laughs> you, you heard me right. And I couldn't understand. I did hear you right, but say it again. Hospitals are paid to the extent that they claim that they were not paid. So explain. So a $100,000 bill, the hospital collects 13000 They claim that they lost 87000 This $87,000 loss maintains the fiction of their not-for-profit status, but it also provides the basis for a kickback the federal government sends to this hospital uh, in the form of what's called disproportionate share hospital payments. So when you hear uncompensated care, that is that is the 87000 that your friend uh, saw written off on the uh, difference between hospital charge and what insurance paid. So the fact is the hospital made money on that case, uh, but they claimed that they lost $87,000. And then that that fictional loss provides the basis for a kickback from the federal government called it's, – it's uncompensated care or DISH, DSH, disproportionate share hospital payments. So I, as I thought about this, I began to realize um, you know, there's a lot of people in on this scam, uh, including the insurance companies. I mean why would an insurance company uh, agree to play along uh, with this hospital? Well – uh, the hot, the insurance company actually wants an inflated charge because then uh, for employers they work with, they can show that the savings that dealing with that particular insurance company generates is very, very large. And so – Because they negotiated such a great price. It was 100 yes. but they only paid – they got you that special price of 13 That's right, which the most employers are unaware has been pre-negotiated. Yeah. Now – now, what the insurers actually do is ask the hospital administrators, can you, you know, can you do a brother a favor and actually charge two hundred thousand for that, yeah. uh, so that our percentage savings actually looks larger? Then there's another part of this called claims repricing, uh, and what that means is, um, to the extent that an insurance company provides these huge percentage discounts. Many times an employer uh, is contractually obligated to pay a commission on the discount achieved. So this is called claims repricing. Uh, and so uh, imagine an insurance company that manages a, uh, an employer's health plan. And they'll say, you know, we have this $100,000 bill. Uh, we reduced it to $13,000. We saved you $87,000 and per the terms of our arrangement – uh, you owe us 20% of that savings. And, and so it doesn't take a mathematician to figure out that the insurance company would actually rather have received a $200,000 bill. Sure. Uh, and so so that that's how that scam works. I call it the giant hospital bill scam. But the uh, employer knows that. The employer is aware of that. The employer understands that the 20% thing is predicated on a fake number. Or they should know it, don't they? It's uh, they're surprisingly unaware. Uh, all they all they seem to uh, embrace is this idea that this insurance company saved us all this money. Uh, you know, they're we get better discounts. You know, I have a I have a friend in Montana who's a, an ERISA lawyer, and 
her name's Corey Cook, and she said, uh, you know, what if she walked up to me and said, what if she walked up to you and said, I'll sell you my house for 50% off? And and the normal, rational person would ask what's the obvious the, question. What's you the know, base? 50, yeah. yeah, 50% off a of lot. Yeah. But that's how this that's how this scam uh, works because not enough people ask that question. Fifty percent off a of lot. Well, maybe I'm a little bit skeptical of the pure scamminess of that, but but there's a lot of scamminess in this in this business. So, um, <laughs> and one of the problems, which which we unfortunately don't have a lot of time to talk about, but one of the problems is that although you do have competitors in the city of Oklahoma City, other hospitals uh, who are not charging cash, but rather taking insurance for many of their folks. Uh, they don't have a lot of competition because if I want to open a hospital uh, in Oklahoma City, I, in some states, I don't know if it's in Oklahoma, I have to get permission from the existing hospitals that I would be needed. And strangely enough, existing hospitals often think you're not. Yeah, that that's exactly right. Um, and I, and Certificate of need, I think it's called. Yeah, that's right. I'd be remiss if I didn't point out at the end of our last discussion that that is the hopefully the obvious reason the insurance companies do not want to work with me is when I say here's how much it is, their opportunity to reprice that claim uh, and make you know skim off that discount is is foregone. But um, I, want, I, I want to go back to uncompensated care um, and let's call it something else. Let's call it poor people. Um, there are people uh, who can't afford or would be very hard for them to afford a, a $10,000 surgery. It's less than 13 and it's less than 100, but it's still 10 that, or 9,900 in your case uh, your, for that surgery in your facility. You don't yeah, – let me say it differently. At a hospital m- with an emergency room, if you show up in distress and you are taken into surgery and it turns out – you are unemployed, homeless, no assets, no insurance. You're not over 65. Uh, you're not part of the Medicaid system. The hospital, I think, is legally obligated to do that surgery on you, and they eat that bill. They may just send a bill out to that person. If the person doesn't have an address, it doesn't matter. But there are a lot of people they send bills to, they just don't pay them, and they get a bad credit rating. But you know they'll try to collect that money. But I, I know from experience that a people I know in the emergency room business and the hospital business that there are a lot of bills that never get paid for those folks. And you you could argue, I think what your angry buddy at that meeting was suggesting is that you don't have to deal with that because you only take cash. And if a poor person shows up, you send them away. They can't pay. Yeah. And, and before we get to feeling too sorry for the, the hospitals, all of the ones I know of claiming to go broke uh, have a have a crane in front of them building onto their emergency room. Um Understand, too, that this situation is not a situation that was inflicted on the hospitals. There, there was an arrangement, and the arrangement was a quid pro quo. It was a mutually beneficial exchange where the government had this Mtala idea, I believe it was under Reagan, that said, you know, the hospitals have to take care of someone who comes in emergency room regardless of ability to pay, and they also can't uh, just send them down the road to somebody, you know, another facility they that's a competitor. But the hospital's part of this was that they didn't have to pay tax. So, yeah, I mean, that you, you think about your life <laughs> without tax. So the hospitals uh, basically doubled their net 
profit uh, with this with this move and the institutionalization of this, you have to take care of people regardless of their ability to pay. So are you serious, Keith? There's too many moments in this episode so far, our conversation where I'm thinking, are you serious? You're saying that before that requirement (laughs) of treating emergency room patients, regardless of ability to pay, that hospitals had to pay income tax taxes on their revenue, on their profit. Yes, that, that was part of that was part of the arrangement. So, if, if you do this, then you don't pay tax. Okay. So, so before I think before people feel like you know the hospitals have been have been just terribly victimized. Uh, just imagine your own life without uh, without property tax. I mean, without without paying any income tax. I mean, all, all of a sudden your balance sheet looks a whole lot healthier, um, and. But aren't they nonprofits? A lot of them don't they have to pay? Don't they pay no taxes anyway? Before, well, they, some of them paid property taxes and paid all kinds of other taxes. I mean, so, they don't pay any taxes now. No, oh. no, they don't pay any tax at all. So, I, I don't know. I, for again, the hospitals that are complaining about this, um, they, they are buying out physician practices. They're buying out competitors. Uh, they they have seem to have a whole lot of money, uh, and and I they're, they're not suffering now. Now what they have done is use the situation you've described, um, the the com, you know the legitimate non payer. They've used that uh, as a as a propaganda tool. I would argue uh, to you know develop a justification for cost shifting, where they charge us all a whole lot more to make up for all the money that they're losing. Um, but but they they really they really need a lot of this red ink uh, to maintain the fiction of their not for profit status. But you know I'm we'll we'll talk at the end I hope about whether your facility is a model for a wider array of healthcare provision, uh, and in particular worrying about people who have who are poor uh, and what they would do in a in a more market oriented world. We'll, we'll come back to that. Uh, I hope I, I want to come back to my. My friend, surgery. So I want to get – again, for listeners, I want to get the numbers in your head. <laughs> the hospital built 100. These are all going to be uh, in thousands roughly. They built 100. They were reimbursed 13, and you charge 10. Now, the 10 is actually – it's not an apples to apples with the 13 because the your 10 includes anesthesiology. Their 13 doesn't. Uh, there are probably some other things not included, but, but, but let's – and that's for my friend, not me just making it up. But bottom line is you, depending on what uses your base, uh, depending on how you dis- you phrase it, uh, the, the the main normal hospital charges 30% more than you do in terms of what they actually collect. Or you charge about, you know, 25, uh, 13, yeah, roughly t- about 20 something percent less. You're cheaper. Now, there could be a lot of reasons for that. It could be your surgeons aren't as good. Your results aren't as good. It could be your land is cheap. You're in Oklahoma City where relatively low land costs. This was in a higher in a metropolitan area with higher rents. But my guess is that's not the main thing. My guess is – and you claim that you actually pay your surgeons a little bit more. Now, one of the disadvantages the 13 hospital has is that they've got more people processing Aetna, Cigna, Blue Cross, Blue Shield, Medicaid, Medicare paperwork that they got to cover. But I think it's more than that. 
I have a feeling there's stuff that's done all along the way that in the case of the 13, there's nobody to say, do I really need that? It just becomes standard operating procedure. But in your facility, it's like, "Mm, I'm not sure we need this. Maybe we shouldn't do it. So tell me if I'm right. Tell me why you think it's 30% more and maybe in other places it's actually 100% more for a lot of procedures. And what do you think, how much of that's due to saving on insurance compliance versus all the other bells and whistles that go with that surgery procedure? Some of which are needed, of course, and you don't want to cut corners, but some of which maybe aren't. Yeah, and and you're you're right. I mean, the... the, uh, Waste uh, at Surgery Center of Oklahoma is punished right off of our net profit. Uh, waste uh, in a big hospital system is actually uh, encouraged many times because hospitals are are paid based on what they use, and many many times surgery centers are paid for what we do. Now that that is changing a little bit, but not very much. So the to the extent that the hospital uh, uses a lot of supplies, uh, that that typically uh, raises and increases the amount of revenue that they receive. So uh, the the waste uh, at a hospital is not necessarily something I would say that's discouraged, uh, and 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 it's just the opposite is the case for the way uh, most surgery centers are reimbursed. That's not universally true. I don't want to be too broad stroke. But, uh, but I, I, it is still very different uh, the way hospitals versus surgery centers are paid uh, by the various payers. But you're, you're exactly right. There, there's a, there are a lot of things that, are, uh, that we believe are wasteful. Uh, we, we have not found uh, that there's really a good reason or indication for us to use electronic medical records. Those are very expensive systems. And so we still have paper charts. Um, and I think, I think all the excitement about you know the interoperability of these of these systems. You know, patients can have their records with them all the time, and and almost all of these uh, dreams of you know what what those systems can bring have gone up in smoke. And I and I think most physicians uh, honestly would agree that these systems actually command more of their time and make them less efficient. Uh, and, I've not and it met. Also make, it also makes patients' records uh, more easily stolen. So um, that, you know, things like electronic medical records, we, we don't have an electronic medical record system at Surgery Center of Oklahoma. If a patient wants the records, then I you know, put them through a scanner and put it on a thumb drive and hand it to them on their way out the door. Uh, and that costs very little. So I, there, there is a lot – there are a lot of uh, staff at a hospital that are uh, necessary employees uh, that can do nothing but fight uh, for payments with uh, the government and these uh, quasi-government insurance companies. So, uh, yeah, we, we just – we don't see how any of that translates to uh, better patient care, so we, we just don't do any of that. I have not. I have a lot of friends who are doctors. I've not met one who thinks that the electronic medical records were a good idea. They hate them. <laughs> they hate them. And it, it actually, it's 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 deeply demoralizing to them because it's put a uh, a barrier between. It's like they're checking their phone all the time uh, while their patients telling out 
telling their symptoms and their story because they're taking notes on this pad, uh, this electronic pad. And um, we've had a lot of guests talking about the placebo effect and the role of the human touch and um, the electronic medical records, I think, has is, is hurt that. It's been terrible for it. And I've not met a doctor who thinks it was a great innovation or it's more efficient or anything like that. They all think it stinks. They could be wrong, of course, but they don't like it. Um, let's go back to this question of, of the, um, the quality of the care. So let's say I, I have um, – I need some surgery, or I think I do, and uh, either my doctor is got a long waiting list right now or Blue Shield hasn't approved the uh, surgery yet. Or they've disapproved it, and I'm stuck. I need to pay cash. And I hear about you. And by the way, uh, if, if I go to a hospital and I say, and I've had this experience, and I say, well, what's it cost for, I, you know, I don't have insurance or I can't wait uh, for the approval or whatever it is, um, they will not quote a price often. They just say, oh, we can't. Oh, yeah, we can't do that. We don't know how. To, they, say, they claim it's impossible, which I find, uh, of course, offensive. <laughs> Uh, sure. Uh, for a lot of reasons, and, and and one of them, of course, is that this is the only part of the economy, the only part of my day to day life that's like this. It's like you're going to take it, like it or not like it, doesn't matter. You're stuck with it. Can't do anything about it. But you, you're you're different. Uh, Surgery Center of Oklahoma says our doors are open. We can get you in. I assume you have a relatively short wait list. If not, you can grab another doctor because you don't have to expand your staff. Uh, you have to find one you like, but then I'd say, well, you know, you know, I'm here in Washington D.C. area. I, I know a lot of fabulous surgeons personally. I know a few personally, and if they are not in the area that I need surgery in, they know a buddy who they trust, and I'd rely on them. But they don't know you. Why would I ever let you open my body, cut into me, slice me up? How would I have any idea whether you're any good? <laughs> and. I've actually asked patients that that have traveled to our facility. The first question I ask is, "What was your, you know, did you shop around? What was your next best price?" And then I ask them, you know, what was the tipping point? Because you know, the first thing that happens when we, when a patient expresses interest in coming to our facility, is I connect them uh, with one of our surgeons. And by the way, there's no one in our facility that I would not let operate on me or my family. That's that's one of our rules. Uh, and I, I say, you know, here's a guy from Minnesota or Wisconsin or Alaska. We see a lot of Alaskans. Uh, and, you know, he, he's been told that he needs this procedure. Uh, you know, you might give it him a call. So it's during that phone conversation, I think, that the patient realizes that, number one, that, you know, my gosh, this is the surgeon that called me. Uh, wow. That's the, the, I'm actually talking to the guy, you know, and and he sounds very bright. He sounds, you know, he's articulate. He's honest. He's, he's obviously done this before. You know, he's affiliated with this facility that has put all their infection rates online and, you know, is not afraid of, um, you know, the discipline the market will hang it, will hand out. But, but ultimately the answer I almost always get is patients connect the dots. They, they realize that, if we're honest about the price, then we're we're probably good at what we do. The the other thing that 
is apparent to many patients is that if something doesn't go well, we don't make more money. And that <laughs> that that distinguishes us uh, from a, that distinguishes us from a hospital. So that that is a tacit understanding um, that you know th- there's an accountability once again that we have um, that we've really embraced. Uh, and so all of those things come together uh, and and the patients understand that. We, we've had some patients that actually went so far as to uh, express the following insight, and that is that in many markets, you get what you pay for, but because healthcare is so dysfunctional and it's not a, a vibrant market, uh, that's distorted that the market. Opposite, yeah, the opposite is actually the case. Where, where prices are high, um, there is an absence of competition. Uh, where prices are lower, that I mean, that means somebody is mixing it up, and they have to compete not just on price but on quality. If anything, the quality light is shining brighter on our facility because our prices are low. Because that is a that's a skepticism generator. Uh, and but, but Keith, I come in. So that that's that's the answer. But I come into your facility. I need uh, the rotator cuff repaired, or I need uh, a hernia repair, whatever it is. And uh, it doesn't go well. It happens. That's part of life. Not every surgery, uh, you know, a hernia, as my understanding, is a is a is the metric for a straightforward surgical procedure. But most of these things have gray aspects to them. So for starters, I don't always know if it went well after I wake up, and it may not have gone well, and I may know that because. I was supposed to have be pain free in my knee or wherever or shoulder, and now I'm not. How often do you have to deal with that? And you say you don't make money if it doesn't doesn't work, but you've already collected the fee, I assume. Yeah, we just don't make more money if something goes wrong. So uh, it's very individualized, uh, and there is no guarantee on our website for a reason, and that's because we feel responsible for something not going wrong to the extent that we were responsible for something going wrong. And what I mean by that is if we perform a hernia repair on a on a patient and you know they have their instructions for what to do and not to do and then they go immediately back to work and are doing heavy lifting and they destroy their repair um, that that is a situation where we probably would ask the patient to at least pay for the supply costs. Uh, the surgeon, he may waive his fee. Uh, I may waive my anesthesia fee, but that's very individualized. We we had a patient uh, from Minnesota that had a ruptured disc in his back, and he came to the surgery center and paid the $9,900 you've referenced online, uh, went back to Minnesota, happy. All of his uh, lower extremity sciatica pain was gone, and um, his cat, stepped out in front of him and he slipped and fell and ruptured a disc at another level. And his family got him back to the surgery center of Oklahoma for it wasn't you know, easy. an operation on this other level. And and his you know, the situation was just so tragic and sad and awful that the surgeon waived his fee and I waived the anesthesia fee and the surgery center just charged him for the cost of the supplies. So, you know, for fifteen hundred dollars he he basically got his other level fixed. So we, that's like that's like position. when you spill your. That's like when you drop your ice cream cone walking out of the ice cream yeah. shop, and they say, "Oh, I'll give him another one." <laughs> yes, 
yeah, so our you know there are two two model economic models I believe in this industry. One is um, you know how do I maximize revenue? What can I get away with? And and unfortunately, that's the prevalent and uh, prevailing model. I blame the federal government for the creation uh, through various incentives for that model. The other model is how do I render maximal value? Uh, and fortunately, in the United States, that that movement is growing, and and so that's our mindset uh, with all patients, uh, including those uh, after after surgery who have some mishap or some instance. Our our focus is uh, is such that every step of the way, even if something goes wrong, the exchange remains uh, uh, mutually beneficial. Well, that sounds nice. Um, I think a lot of people think I'm, I was in a Twitter war earlier today along these lines that, well, but that's all. I mean, that's all. That's all business is. It's just trying to get that first proposition. It's just all about getting more revenue, get more money. It's all about greed. And you're saying that that in the nonprofit and for-profit hospital world, they don't have the incentives to do a good job. You do. You sound, but you know, I'm just gonna. I'm sitting here. I'm a skeptic, and I love. Let's say. A different kind of medical system. I don't like what you're doing, and I'm thinking oh, that just that just it's all marketing. You don't really believe that. Okay, one time maybe I don't even know if it's a true story. You gave a guy a cheap price on his repair of a second uh, ruptured disc. Why, <laughs> why would I think? Why would I believe any of this? This is all just um, romance. Well, uh, I mean we we've, we've been doing this for a long time, and our um our, I think our record on supporting free markets, the discipline that comes along with them is established. I think that there are uh, there are more Facebook reviews uh, of patient experiences at our at our surgery center that would uh, back up my claims uh, than than someone wants to take time to read. So we we really do. Uh, we really do believe this, and we practice it. And I think that if we were, um, if we were dishonest in some way or trying to misle people, uh, you know, and, and deceive them, uh, one of the things we absolutely would never have done, uh, I think, is put our prices on a website and and make them all inclusive. So, uh, again, the, the patients who who come to our facility have connected those dots. I think I think they equate. Uh, price honesty uh, with with quality and and people who know what they're doing. Let me ask about one more example of a of a, say a bad surprise. Uh, you go in and do that uh, that back surgery, and there's there's a small but non-zero chance of uh, spinal fluid leakage. And let's say it happens. It's not a it's not a failure on the part of the surgeon. It's just the part of the practice of of surgery that things that are unexpected or or an infection. Uh, which also happens in your facility, a very small percentage of time relative to the national average. But, uh, you know, I don't know how small that is relative to, quote, similar facilities. I, I have no idea. I can't evaluate that, right, as a, a prospective patient. What happens in that situation, though, where something doesn't come out with the happy result that, that one hoped for, or worse, you know, a tragedy? Um, there's paralysis, there's death. These things happen in surgery, sometimes through the fault of, of an inept position, but sometimes just bad luck. How do you cope with that? 
Well, um, I mean, financially, how does the patient cope with that and how do we cope with that? Again, it's very, it's very individualized. Um, we, again, to the extent that we believe we are responsible, and this is not uh, something that is argued about. I mean, it's a it's a conversation that we have with the patient to the belief, to the extent that we feel like we have some role in in a bad outcome. Uh, then we we bear that cost. So we we did a, a bunion surgery uh, two years ago on a patient that was um, very overweight and uh, was a really a bad diabetic and a heavy smoker. And so. Yeah, we we knew at the outset uh, that she was a very high risk for infection, and and the infection rates you see on our website include uh, people with those types of comorbidities. Um, so her employer um, is has a self funded health plan, so they pay a hundred percent of all of their employees' uh, bills if they come to my facility, uh, and we have we have three hundred contracts like that uh, with employers. All of the United States, in fact, in all 50 states that will fly their employees to Oklahoma City to have their surgery. Uh, and if the employee agrees to that, the employer pay the entire bill. Well, in a conversation with the uh, HR human resource people at this employer, I, I told them, I said, you know, when, just on the front end, just so you know, I mean, this patient is a very high risk of infection. Uh, and you know, we're going to go ahead and do this and, you know, do everything we know to do, but you know, this one is kind of a head scratcher. So after surgery, uh, the patient did, and uh, they did, they developed a wound infection. And I called the employer and said, well, here's what I propose. Um, the surgeon and anesthesia, we're going to waive our fees. And I would like for you just to pay as we go along the cost of the supplies here at the surgery center uh, and for taking care of this issue. And the employer said, um, you, you need to have more infections. <laughs> you need to have more complications. And I said, well, I don't understand. And he said, if your goal is to deliver value, he said, you could not have demonstrated it more strongly than you just did. So again, when when something happens, it, the, the response to that on our end is very individual. Uh, it's, it's very, it's different for uh, different patients. Um, if someone uh, has uh, something go wrong and they're really in dire straits, then we we exercise our right to be charitable, uh, and we do that. So uh, the 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 answer to, is it's not a broad stroke answer, and that's why there's nothing in writing about it on our website. But we uh, we are physicians and. We own and control our facility, and one of the reasons we do is so that we can be financial advocates for patients who are there, and and that's what guides us. I'm talking with Keith Smith of the Surgery Center of Oklahoma. I want to thank Plantronics for providing his headset, the Blackwire 5220. I want to continue by asking about one more complication. Uh, You open up somebody, you've agreed on a price, it's on the web, it's it's totally transparent. But once you get inside, you realize, you know, I think we needed to use the mesh or whatever it is, whatever, you know, the human body is complicated. Uh, What do you do in that situation? Do you charge them? Now, I I bring this up because I think a lot of people think that if you're like me and you believe in a free market for healthcare, and I suspect you do too, Keith, that, oh, well, you know, people would 
they'd be bleeding and they'd be taken advantage of. And so here's the perfect case. You're under the knife. Do you take, how do you, how do you deal with that? I can't, what do you, you wake the patient up, take them off the anesthesia and say, hey, want to go for the higher quality one? We think you need it. How's that work? Early on, uh, we had a situation very much like what you've described and the surgeon who was new to our facility and operations said, well, um, at this point, I guess, I guess Keith, you'll go out and visit with the family about uh, getting more money. <laughs> and I said, no, at this point, um, you and I will discuss the extent to which your surgeon's fee uh, will be reduced for your failure to correctly diagnose the situation that we're actually in. So there is no way I would ever go back to a patient and ask for more money. That ta- the ultimate bait and switch. Yeah. Uh, the problem you've described is a manifestation of uh, the inexperience uh, or the mistake of otherwise a good diagnostician. So uh, we we have we've been known to reduce a surgeon's fee to the extent that you know buying extra supplies like that are needed. Uh, the use of which should have been anticipated by them. Uh, and also, I'm. I have complete control over, you know, to whom these referrals are sent. And if a if a surgeon illustrates, a, you know, a history and a pattern of, you know, mistakes like this, then they they just receive no more referrals. You talked about uh, employers flying patients to see you. There's recently a story in the New York Times where a patient, an employer, flew a patient to Mexico. Uh, which would not be that exciting usually for a patient. A patient might like to go to Cancun. It's in Cancun. A patient might like to go to Cancun, but not for knee surgery. Uh, but they were reassured it's, it's an American facility in Mexico with an American doctor flown in from Wisconsin who was trained at the Mayo Clinic. Oh, and by the way, if you'll do this for us and fly to Mexico to have your surgery there instead of under uh, the American system of the not-for-profit hospital nearby – we will pay you a check. We will give you money. We're not going to make you meet your deductible. We're not going to make you pay anything out of pocket. We're going to give you money, $5,000. There's that much of a distortion and, uh, again, Kafkaesque confusion about what a price is in our current so-called market. And for me, nothing illustrates how dysfunctional our current medical care system is than that. And I'd like your reaction to that. And I, and I see you as a, you're just a slightly different version. I don't pay 5,000, you pay zero to go there uh, for that employer. They're, they're, they're just still a better deal than what they have around the corner. But the point is for this Mexican example, there's so much of a gap between the, the, pro, the so-called price and the true cost that it's worth it to pay the patient to leave the country and get the surgery done elsewhere. Yeah, and, and you'll see more and more self-funded health plans do exactly that. Um, another ERISA lawyer, good friend of mine, Adam Russo at the FIA group uh, in Boston, he pays uh, his employees uh, to travel to a venue uh, and pays all of the medical costs. He also uh, pays them a percentage of the fraud uh, that they can detect on their hospital bill. So, 
Oh yeah, you, oh that is should, that is they get a commission. They they get yeah, a. You, uh, should, you uh, should interview. <laughs> you should interview Adam Russo at the FIA Group. He's a lot of fun. But uh, explain what explain what ERISA is, by the way. Well, ERISA is um, a federal law that governs, um, uh, amongst uh, among other things, uh, health plans that uh, the employers decide uh, to implement basically and operate themselves. So. Uh, Employers of varying sizes, usually 50 or more employees, although not always, um, they they decide they don't want to pay Blue Cross. Uh, they would rather assume the risk themselves. So these self-funded or self-insured companies, uh, they actually pay for their employees' medical care. Uh, sometimes they'll have a safety net uh kind of catastrophic, catastrophic stop-loss yeah. stop policy yeah, underneath it. Sometimes they don't. Um, but the the ERISA is the uh, federal laws that uh, lord over and uh, govern that arrangement. Okay, so I'm sorry I interrupted your another one of your you serious moments in this episode. So this these folks pay their employees a uh, a, a share. They give them a <laughs> uh, finder's fee for finding fraud in the bill like they gave them orange juice that they didn't get what what are we talking about here yeah i mean who knows better than the patient when they look at the bill that well i never got that you know i never got that does that happen oh yeah so they start redlining their hospital bill and well this never happened i know this person never came by to see me this this never happened and um, adam russo he'll he'll pay them a commission on the extent to which that fraud is uncovered so the uh, the ability of and the willingness of self-funded health plans and the employers who who provide those to really mix it up with big hospital systems is that is that is a very uh, vibrant uh, movement too and and I believe that's the engine uh, that ultimately will move the United States more toward a market system the buyer that the self-funded health plans represents is is more gigantic than most people know. Um, 80% of all of the medical bills paid to the United States, other than the ones government pays, are paid by the self-funded industry. Bring it on. Yeah. And so, A little more skin in the game. Yeah, and, and you can imagine the self-funded industry loves what the Surgery Center of Oklahoma is doing. And, and the Surgery Center of Oklahoma is just one facility, um, the, a list of who is you know who is getting into this game is found at the Free Market Medical Association's website, uh, where there are prices for everyone who uh, is a member posted. So uh, the self-funded industry is really grabbing on to this price transparent, uh, non-price gouging sort of movement, and and so your comment earlier that a hospital will not give you a price if you ask, increasingly um, they will. Uh, because this this is very creepy. Market, market to, pressure to, on them. Yeah, it's very creepy to them. And there are a large number of patients that will actually print out a price list, uh, mine or somebody else's, and they'll they'll bring it to the hospital or to their surgeon and say, you know, you guys need to match this or I'm flying to Oklahoma City. And so the this the power that the certificate of need you rep, you referenced earlier that prevents new facilities from emerging in this marketplace, that that power is uh, is is beginning to fade because 
a fair price, a known guaranteed fair price is a plane ride away uh, for uh, everybody in this country. And and so the ability to prevent a new facility from popping up in uh, North Carolina or New York or New Jersey, three of the worst states uh, in the country, the ability to keep a facility like that from uh, appearing in the marketplace, that's just not as powerful when someone can fly uh, to Charlottesville, Virginia or Oklahoma City or Austin, Texas or Houston or Torrance, California or Las Vegas or any number of places where you know these these facilities like mine exist. So one thought you might have as a listener, or one might have generally, is that well, this is such a great idea. Why isn't it more common? I mean, you just listed a handful of places. It's a handful. It's ten, eight, fifteen. I looked at the website. There may be twenty-ish places you can get transparent pricing, like you do. You're part of a movement. It's a small movement. Why isn't it bigger? Um, it's big. It's small because it's relatively new. Uh, we also have um, – there's a lot of inertia because the industry is uh, so dominated by uh, the government and the cronies. Uh, the government the government is in the legislators uh, – yeah, they don't. They don't want to jeopardize the support of their friends in the medical industrial complex. So there, there's just a lot of inertia. What What's astonishing to me is not how um, how small this movement is. What What's astonishing to me is how quickly it's growing in spite of all the obstacles. Um, there, and I mentioned earlier, I actually have some friends in the hospital world. As shocking as that may sound, because. Uh, a truly honest um, hospital administrator knows that what's going on is not sustainable. And so they, they want to understand and they actually want to participate uh, in this free market movement if they can. And so I work with several hospitals who, who are in the shadows. So they are participating in this, but they're kind of behind the scenes uh, because they're, they're afraid that you know some insurance carrier is going to be angry with them uh, for actually quoting patients uh, guaranteed bundled fees. So um, I I actually help run a uh, payment clearinghouse uh, that that helps sort of shield these hospitals from uh, anyone knowing really who they are or you know how much these uh, prices are that they're quoting. So the movement's actually much larger than it appears because there are people who are in the shadows who just kind of have their toe in the water, uh, very afraid uh, of what the big insurance carriers uh, might do in response to their joining this movement, but there's a tipping point uh, and it's coming. And I think, I think it will come uh, very quickly. I think as Murray Rothbard said, these you know these revolutions they 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 don't really emerge over time. They just kind of suddenly happen. And and I think that's what we're going to see uh, in this industry. Well, you mentioned the insurance companies negatively a few times. It's worth pointing out that they also have many, many barriers to competition that make life easier for them. Uh, it's very hard to operate across state lines. A lot of mandates that set a lot of services in stone and make it hard for competitive opportunities to distinguish themselves. It's kind of a – it's not a good system. Uh, and I'm going to make a little speech now, Keith. I apologize. Uh but I, I want to say something to my listeners, and uh, it's it's from the heart. It's going to actually end with question, actually, though. But but sit sit still for a sec here, because 
you may have noticed that while I've been talking, and Keith, I don't know if you're not a regular listener, uh, you don't know how my tone is. I've been, this is a somewhat typical episode, but there have been a couple of moments where I kind of got a little more intense than usual. And I was sitting here thinking while you're talking, why is that? You know, part of it's you're on my team. You know, you like free markets. You don't like government so much. You like competition. But I realize there's something deeper going on. And that is, all my life, I've talked about the power of markets and feedback loops and the incentives that markets produce through emergent phenomena, not through dictates or legislation. And when you take that view, you get chastised a lot. Lately, the the latest thing I get chastised for, you've heard it on some recent guests, you're going to hear it on some others coming forward. Oh, you're just so dogmatic. You're just such a fundamentalist. You just think markets solve everything. You don't realize healthcare is different. And then they'll say, well, look at the healthcare market in America. Look how horrible it is. It's expensive. So my side takes out beating on this issue. And here you come along and you say, actually, you know, I'm not going to theorize about the ability of markets to solve problems or private choice or the ability of people to figure out what they need. I'm going to actually do it. And so I find it exhilarating. You've heard some skepticism from me. You know, you might be a little bit overenthusiastic. It is your business. We all understand that. But I think an open-minded person would have to say, wow, this is interesting. This is different. And the fact that your competitors are providing a service that's often zero out of pocket, see, that's your real competition is the current structural price. It's kind of like saying, can a private school exist? Oh, of course not. Everybody gets their private, their schooling for free. Who would pay for it? So a lot of people, not everybody, but a lot of people out in America today get their health care with very little out of pocket. It's subsidized through the tax system, through their employer-provided health care. It's paid for by Medicaid. It's paid for by Medicare. It's an incredibly distorted system. And yet in that system, You've been able to provide a service with real money where people had to put their own skin in the game, your surgeons, your savings, and your patients' lives, and it works pretty well. It maybe works great. I'm open to that possibility. I'm I'm actually optimistic about that. I lean that way. I have confirmation bias that way. But that's why I realized in the course of this conversation, I got a little heated uh, in, in enthusiasm for what you do. And in in frustration at the way the rest of the system works, because I keep getting told all my life that we need to get away from markets and have single payer and we need all these other solutions and we need to have government do it. Look how efficient and wonderful it is in Canada and the United Kingdom. And you suggest that actually we need more markets, more choice, more skin in the game. So thank you for that. And now a question. The question is, is that in my world, you would be the common way that this world worked. And then the question would be for people who can't afford it, group we touched on earlier, who can't afford 10000 can't afford the $3,000 hernia. Maybe they're homeless. Maybe they're just really poor. Maybe there is a single mom. And that single mom's paying tuition at the private school that, that I'm in favor of because there's no government schools anymore. So how's that, how's that mom going to pay for her biopsy or her kid's surgery when it's $10,000? And my answer's always been, well, I think there'll be foundations that'll help fund that. 
But I'm curious what you'd say. And do you have a vision that, that the rest of healthcare could move more in your direction and away from the direction that everyone else seems to be leaning? And thank you for your patience. And I mean that no, in both senses of the word, patience and patience. Sorry about that. <laughs> Dad joke. <laughs> yeah, the, you know, the what about the poor question is, is a very, uh, very frequent question. And I, I always caution people not to consider the poor in the aggregate. Uh, they're they're individuals, uh, and I believe um, I believe that the individuals that do not have the means to secure care that they want or need uh, should be treated uh, as individuals. Partly because to consider them in the aggregate is to beg uh, for a centralized uh, solution that will fail them and uh, and ultimately will just ration to them. So. One way to think about this is that at current prices, we're all poor, uh, and the only way to bring the only way to bring prices down uh, without sacrificing quality in every other industry and market that is known to man is market competition. So, we believe that as market competition is not thwarted but actually um, encouraged or not not hamstrung uh, by the by the players in the mar- in the industry now, and, and as there's more market competition, uh, prices will fall fall so dramatically uh, that the number of individuals uh, for whom uh, a partial or complete lack of funds is an issue uh, becomes uh, it dwindles. It becomes very very small. For that group of patients, uh, we believe the answer is uh, is to be charitable. Uh, we know that our ability to be charitable uh, is is strengthened because we've disintermediated our system. We we could care less whether the Surgery Center of Oklahoma, as an institution, uh, makes a profit on an individual that you and I would both agree and characterize as poor. Uh, and as physicians, we are we're happy to waive our fees when that individual comes along. So. What we're looking at then is just the cost of supplies to perform some of these surgeries. And and I'm here to tell you the cost of the supplies is just not that high. Uh, and and we've seen uh, GoFundMe uh, efforts to cover that. Uh, we had a patient, we had a family drive over from South Carolina uh, to have their child's tonsils taken out uh, with the proceeds of a church bake sale. And when we learned, when we learned that that was the story, you know, we we just gave them all their money back and say no no we're not we'll you know we'll do our part uh, so I I think that the first way to to address the problem of the poor is to just just have a whole lot fewer of them by making sure prices are mashed down and then uh, the issue of the poor is very very much more manageable uh, I believe it's a local uh, in an individual. Uh, uh, solution that that I mean it's individual per patient uh, because otherwise you you uh, you court the disaster of a national centralized solution that will do anything but deliver uh, quality and care to those people. My guest today has been Keith Smith. He is the co-founder of the Surgery Center of Oklahoma. Keith, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. 
For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.